Every worldview has to answer the question, what is the thing or the entity or the process from which everything else came? Darwinism and its affiliated theories and sub-theories has been a crucial part of uh, the support for the worldview of, of, of naturalism or scientific naturalism. The idea that the universe is eternal and self-existing and self-organizing, therefore there is no need for an external creator or designing intelligence of any kind. Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Stephen Meyer. Stephen is a best-selling author, a former geophysicist, and the director of the Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. Working alongside J.P. Moreland, Wayne Grudem, Christopher Shaw, and Ann Gager, Stephen co-edited Theistic Evolution, a scientific, philosophical, and theological critique from Crossway. Today, Stephen and I discuss the controversial topic of theistic evolution. He explains what the term does and doesn't mean, describes the amazing digital code at the heart of all life on Earth, and highlights significant scientific and philosophical problems with many forms of theistic evolution advocated today. Let's get started. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway Podcast. It's awfully nice to be with you, Matt. Yeah, so evolution, it's one of those hot-button words that people on all sides can very quickly get pretty riled up about. I'm sure you've experienced that, you've seen that dynamic. And I think one of the tricky things about it, though, is that people mean different things by that word when they use it. It's kind of a uh, somewhat vague word when you really get into it. And so I guess as a place to start, what do you mean by the word evolution? Just that one word when you use it. Well. I don't use it in a singular sense. I, in the Theistic Evolution book, started my introduction to the book by defining the different meanings that are associated with the word evolution. And uh, the, the first meaning, of course, is, is uh, the most basic, which is just the idea of change over time. And in biology, that has two separate senses of change over time. There's the change that we've seen over time in the representation of fossilized forms of life in the stratigraphic column in the rocks. So the, the fossil record documents that there have been different forms of life living on the planet at different times. Mm. So that's a sense of change over time. Right. Uh, and, and, and an uncontroversial one. Most people accept that uh, we don't have triceratopses and uh, <laughs> uh, T-Rexes today, but we, we have other animals on the planet. So um, that's, that's uh, one sense of change over time. Another sense of change over time is the idea that the, the uh, uh, organisms can adapt to their environment in fairly modest ways, but in discernible ways. Uh, the famous example that... Uh, it's been used by many evolutionary biologists as that of the finch beaks that get a little longer, a little shorter in response to varying weather patterns or the coloration of peppered moths. This sort of what's sometimes called microevolution uh, is also quite uh, un uncontentious. Not, people don't dispute that. So that's one sense of the term evolution is just change over time. We've already seen, though, that there's two senses of that one sense, right? 
Um, but a second major meaning of the term evolution is the idea that all the forms of life that ex have existed on Earth are descended from a single common answer, uh, ancestor such that the change over time that we see is continuous and gradual, that uh, the history of life is therefore best depicted by a great branching tree where the, the, the trunk of the tree is, represents the, the first one-celled organism from which all other forms of life morphed and changed over time in a very gradual way. Now that's a very specific Darwinian sense of the meaning of evolution. And uh, Darwin described that or equated that idea with what he called common descent or common ancestry. That's a more controversial definition of change over time. Uh, evolutionary biologists have long accepted it, but increasingly because of the discontinuity that we see in the fossil record and discontinuities that we're de de detecting in the genetic sequences of different organisms, um, many scientists now question the idea that all forms of life are related by common ancestry. So the Darwinian view is sometimes we think of one great tree of life. Now there's another view that says there are multiple trees mm. and multiple wow. separate groups of organisms. So we have a distinction that's drawn in evolutionary biology between the monophyletic one tree view and the polyphyletic multiple tree view where uh, there's, there's discontinuities and separate origins for different groups of organisms. So that's the second meaning of change over time. Third one is the most controversial of all. And that's the idea that that gradual uh, and continuous change described by evolution meaning number two was generated or produced by an unguided and undirected mechanism known as natural selection acting on random mutations or in Darwin's time, they were described as random variations. Biologists today refer to not only variations in, uh, in the genes that are passed on to new organisms, but also changes in those genes produced by random events called mutations. So uh, the idea there is that, that, that uh, the, all the change that's described by the Darwin's tree of life has been produced by the mechanism of natural selection acting on random mutations, or similar, similarly undirected, purely materialistic mechanisms. Uh, there are other mm, okay. mechanisms that evolutionary biologists talk about today under the heading of the extended synthesis, going beyond the Darwinian and neo-Darwinian synthesis in evolutionary biology to invoke other, other mechanisms. Um, so, but, but the key idea there is that the, the cause of the change is unguided, undirected, and purely natural. And that leads to uh, an implication of the third meaning of evolution, which is that there's no actual design in living organisms, only the appearance of design. Richard Dawkins, the great modern Darwinist, has said that biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. And this is, this is a, 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 a central commitment of Darwinian evolution, Darwin, right back to Darwin himself, but and is continued right up to the present day, that things look designed, but they're not really designed because there's a purely unguided, undirected mechanism, usually thought to be natural selection and random mutations, that's producing the appearance of design in all these different forms of life, but, not, it, but it's not actual design because, of course, the mechanism that produced it was not guided by an intelligent agent. So um, mutation and selection are thought to be 
the, a, a kind of designer substitute. They can mimic the powers of a designing intelligence without being guided or directed in any way. So that's also associated with the term evolution, and it's kind of an implication of the third meaning, that the, an unguided, undirected process produced all the new forms of life and the appearance of design they manifest, therefore there's no actual design. It's a loaded term. It's got lots of different meanings. So you need to ask people, what do you mean by evolution? If someone asks you, do you think it's true or false? So then how does theistic evolution fit into all of this? Uh, there's another word we're adding to the mix that maybe inherently isn't super uh, specific. This is why I wrote a, a, a fairly detailed introduction to the whole volume, because the first thing we wanted to do was define the position that we meant to critique. And you can see that you could combine the term theism with any one of those meanings of evolution, right? So you could be a theistic evolutionist in the sense that you believe that God exists and that God is in some way responsible for change over time. But God could be responsible for change over time by, by specially creating new forms of life at different times. So there, that first meaning of evolution, uh, one that no one disputes, could be meaningfully synthesized with a notion of special, a special creation, right? Um, but typically, theistic evolutionists affirm either evolution number two or evolution number three, um, and then have a difficult time explaining what they mean, uh, what their position is concerning the appearance of design in, in nature. So typically, the, mo the most common theistic evolution evolutionist position is to say, well, I accept the scientific evidence for evolution, which usually means right. common ancestry and the creative power of the mutation selection mechanism and other similar supplementary mechanisms. Okay. And that's usually the position. Some theistic evolutionists will say, well, I'm skeptical about evolution number three, but I accept common, I accept common ancestry. And because so many mainstream secular evolutionary biologists are now skeptical about the creative power of natural selection and random mutation, many theistic evolutionists today will tacitly affirm the creative power of that mechanism because it's the only thing on offer scientifically within a materialistic framework, but they won't defend it because they know it's been so roundly criticized even within mainstream evolutionary biology, so they'll typically defend common ancestry and nothing else and say that God is somehow behind that whole process. They don't want to say he's actively guiding it, because if he's actively guiding it, then that's a form of intelligent design. And so typically they'll say that God exists. He's maybe upholding the laws of nature in some sort of generic sense in the background. Um, but uh, then the, the evolutionary mechanisms are doing the creative work and producing the picture of the tree of life that affirms common ancestry. Go back a little bit. I had a quick question related to your comment about how there is maybe a growing, even secular scientific questioning of natural selection as being a sufficient mechanism for uh, evolution happening. It seems like that's the kind of thing that you just don't hear in the broader culture. As a non-scientist, when I hear uh, people talk about evolution in the news, scientists, or I see a documentary about something where evolution is often referenced. I I've never really heard someone say, acknowledge that, oh, maybe there are some real scientific problems with this as, the, as a dominant theory. So why do you think that might be? Well, evolution in that third sense, well, in, in all senses, but in the third sense especially, 
is an indispensable plank or supportive um, proposition uh, in favor of a larger materialistic worldview or a naturalistic worldview. And that worldview dominates the intellectual landscape of our culture in the, in the universities, the law schools, the courts, the media. Most people presuppose uh, an, a naturalistic worldview that excludes the possibility of um, uh, knowledge of, of, of a person such as God and that God played a meaningful role in creation and, and so forth. Um, and so there's, a, I think, a tremendous amount of uh, philosophical um, predisposition to accept whatever creation story makes that, that worldview huh. uh, plausible. Yeah. Right. At the same time, the many evolutionary biologists who themselves will openly explain the the uh, the materialistic implications of their theory are not now acknowledging that the main engine of creation in a materialistic sense, the mechanism of natural selection acting on random mutation, is insufficient to produce uh, fundamentally new forms of life. And this isn't just a little evidence around the edge that's, uh, you know, some anomalies here and there. This is a fundamental, uh, there are fundamental challenges to this, this mechanism. So, for example, 2016, I attended a conference at the Royal Society in London. And it was a, a, a conference examining new trends in evolutionary theory, evolutionary biology. Very innocuous title, but the conference was called by people who are part of the, the so-called third way. They don't want to affirm intelligent design or any non-naturalistic theory of origins, but they're completely dissatisfied with the standard neo-Darwinian, the modern Darwinian theory of evolution, and they are specifically unsatisfied with that theory because they doubt the creative power of the natural selection random mutation mechanism. So the opening talk, and these were evolutionary biologists who are calling this conference and convening it. So the opening talk of that conference was given by a man named Gerd Muller, a leading Austrian evolutionary biologist who started by listing the explanatory deficits, as he called them, of the neo-Darwinian synthesis. And uh, one of those deficits had to do with the inability of the standard Darwinian mechanism to produce phenotypic complexity, anatomical novelty, in other words, all the things that Darwinian theory is supposed to explain. Where, do, where does new biological form come from? Uh, and the answer was, from a neo-Darwinian point of view, we don't know. And the conference was essentially called to explore other supplemental or alternative evolutionary mechanisms that might provide uh, a basis for believing in the creative power of some naturalistic undirected evolutionary process. At the end of the conference, one of the uh, people who's been very prominent in this third way movement declared the conference to be, uh, she characterized it as being for, for its lack of momentousness. And essentially the take home was we did a really good job of, of characterizing the problems with neo-Darwinism, but we really haven't come up with or settled on any kind of alternative mechanism that uh, can can provide the that has the creative power required to explain the origin of fundamentally new forms of life, the new body plans, an anatomical structure, the phenotypic complexity, the complexity of the visible body type. That's just what phenotypes refer to. Um, 
that we see emerging over time in the fossil record. So uh, I, and if you get into the technical literature in biology, you find that this is widely admitted. And yet there's this huge disparity between the public presentation of the theory on the one hand and what you find in the technical peer-reviewed literature. So how would you respond to maybe somebody, a secular scientist, again, who would hear that and say, you know, you're right. Uh, this current theory that we're, has been the dominant theory for a long time uh, is sh showing its age, perhaps. But give us some time. This is the way science works. We, we improve our theories over time. And right now, we don't really know how it works, but we will. We'll figure that out. Well, our response is fine. We give you the time and we want you to give us space, uh, space in the discussion. Because what's been going on um, tacitly over, over decades now since Darwin first formulated his theory in The Origin of Species is that this, the, the enterprise of science has been subtly uh, redefined to include only materialistic explanations of all events, even major origins events. Creative intelligence which we detect all the time in our ordinary experience. We de detect the effects of creative intelligence um, in, the, in the echo of what, what intelligence leaves behind. Creative intelligence or intelligent design has been taken off the table as a possible explanation for biological phenomena. And yet in biology prior to Darwin, it was part of the framework and uh, an explanatory framework of, of biology, especially as pertaining to the origin of events. So this convention that's taken root in science has a name, it's called methodological naturalism. It says if you're gonna be a real scientist, you must explain everything, including human action, human behavior, um, the origin of the universe, the origin of the fine tuning of the universe, the origin of, of life and major groups of animals by reference only to strictly materialistic processes. And you cannot refer to creative intelligence or a mind or the activity of a designing agent as an explanation for any event. Well, that fits the sensibilities of our modern age, but it's actually profoundly anti-intellectual because it very well may be that the origin of, for example, the digital code at the foundation of life is the product of a master programmer. And we may have evidence of that precisely in the information-bearing properties of molecules like DNA and RNA and proteins and the larger information processing system in the cell. In other words, we're seeing at the foundation of life distinctive hallmarks of intelligent activity, things that have not been explained by natural selection and random mutation or any other materialistic process, and yet we're being told by the scientific community with its affirmation of these tacit conventions that we can't consider that alternative explanation. And we want to say, fine, you know, continue to explore materialistic explanations for these phenomena that have not been explained by neo-Darwinism, but also be open to considering an alternative explanation that is um, currently not being permitted, but which is intellectually possible and for which there is good evidence. And that's the theory of the idea of intelligent design. I wonder if you could just briefly even unpack that term that you used a couple minutes ago, digital code, because I think that's one of the most fascinating arguments uh, against theistic evolution and, and the broader Darwinian uh, system, that there's this digital code at the heart of all living organisms that uh, seems to suggest that there was an intelligence behind it. Can you unpack that for us? Yeah, here's the, here's the story. 1953, Watson and Crick 
elucidate the structure of the DNA molecules. Fantastic discovery. Uh, they know it has something to do with hereditary traits, but as they elucidate the structure of the molecule, they realize that it's perfectly suited for storing information in a digital form. And, and in 1957, Watson, uh, not Watson, but Crick, extended the, their, their idea and proposed something called the sequence hypothesis, in which he proposed that the four subunits, chemical subunits that run along the interior of that famed du double helix molecule, and these subunits are called nucleotide bases, or just bases for short. And he posited that these bases are functioning like alphabetic characters in a written text or the kind of uh, digital characters that we use in computer software today, zeros and ones. But instead of a two-digit, uh, a four-digit, uh, sorry, instead of a two-digit binary code, which we use in computer, the computer world, or a 26-letter alphabetic system that we use in English language, uh, the, the genetic text uses a, a four-character code. And um, Watts, uh, or Crick was proven over the ensuing years to be correct about this. The DNA is, mm, wow. stores the information for building the sequence instructions for building the protein molecules that are necessary to keep cells alive. And the proteins do all the important jobs in the cell. They process information. They build the structural parts of molecular machines. They form the, uh, uh, they, they are, they, they form enzymes, which catalyze important reactions in biosynthetic pathways and metabolic systems. So proteins are critical, but they're built from instructions and the instructions are encoded in this molecule. Now, what we know from experience is that whenever we see information, especially in a digital or alphabetic form, and we trace it back to its ultimate source, whether we're talking about computer software or a hieroglyphic inscription or a paragraph in a book or information embedded in a radio signal, whenever we see information, especially in a digital form, it always comes from a mind, not an undirected material process. And what I found in my research on the origin of the first life, and this is what my, my first book was about, is that all attempts to explain the origin of life had reached an impasse because they'd been unable to explain the origin of the information necessary to produce it. Think of it this way. If you want to build a, uh, if you want to give your computer a new function, you've got to provide new code. The same thing turns out to be true in life. You want to build a, 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 the first one-celled organism or new forms of life subsequent to that, you have to provide information for building the proteins that service the cells, that make the, the anatomical structures and so forth. So what would you say is the strongest argument against a theistic evolution? So a distinctly, let's say, a Christian uh, approach to uh, using the ideas of neo-Darwinian evolution and kind of maybe modifying them as they feel like they need to to fit within a Christian framework. But what would be the strongest argument that you have against that? Well, again, it depends on what we mean by theistic evolution. If we're just saying that um, God caused change over time, I have absolutely no problem with that. Um, uh, if, if With that definition, I'd be a theistic evolutionist. Um, the idea that God caused continuous, gradual change over time is not something that has necessarily, um, uh, it poses no great theological problems. Um, there might be reasons to doubt it if you have a particular reading of the Genesis account, but God could be actively causing gradual change over time. Um, 
I think there are scientific reasons to challenge universal common ancestry. The fossil record shows nothing of the kind. It shows a, a decidedly discontinuous pattern of sudden appearance and, and what's called stasis, changelessness over long periods of time. And the genomic data we have are now suggesting profound discontinuities between major groups of organisms. There's a new discovery uh, of what are called orphan genes, genes that are uh, unique to specific taxonomic groups that have no sequence similarity to any other known genes. In the Darwinian picture of the history of life, every gene should be slightly similar to some other, indicating that continuous pattern of change. And instead, we have these abrupt changes in the genomic sequences where we see very uh, unique genes in different taxonomic groups. So you've got a lot of evidence of discontinuity. So for that second sense of theistic evolution, I think there's a strong scientific challenge. Um, the third meaning of evolution conjoined with theism would be the idea that God is exists and that uh, God is perhaps upholding the laws of nature that allow for this process of natural selection and random mutation to take place. But that mechanism is otherwise entirely unguided and undirected. And so it's a little bit, you, you could say that God is upholding the laws of nature, but is he doing anything active to create new forms of life? Um, is, is that process guided or unguided? And here our friends in the theistic evolution camp get a little bit, they get famously vague. They don't want to say that God is not guiding the undirected process because that's, uh, or is not guiding the, the, the process of mutation and selection because um, while not quite a, a deistic view of, of uh, it's not a deistic theology of nature because God is doing something, he's upholding the laws of nature. He's not doing act, anything active in creation, so it certainly involves a kind of diminished view of divine sovereignty, which is inconsistent with, with uh, a, a, a robustly biblical theology. And so most theistic evolutionists are a little bit diffident. They want, don't want to say that God is not actively guiding the process. But they also don't want to say that he's guiding the process, because that would be a form of intelligent design, and they've been explicitly critical of the theory of intelligent design. And in saying that God is actively guiding the evolutionary process, they'd also be breaking with the mainstream scientific view as affirmed by uh, secular evolutionary biologists. And they're very explicit about affirming the science of that view. Right. So there has been a bit of a dilemma, and we've been pressing our friends for clarity on that issue, exactly where do you, where you stand. M my take on it is that what, what, if you do press, typically what happens is that the people will say, well, we think God is upholding the laws of nature, and we can't really tell whether God is directing it or, or guiding it or not guiding the process. And so they want, they'll say that, that God might be guiding it, but it's undetectable to science. So then it becomes not really any kind of explanation for the appearance of design. At that point, it really lacks any empirical content because there's no, there's no, um, there's no proposition there. They're not affirming that God is or isn't doing anything. They're just saying, well, he might be or he's in the background somehow and we can't say. But then we have to, at that point, theistic evolution, evolution, evolution so defined, loses any relevance as an explanation for actual biological phenomena. Hmm, yeah. So speak to the person then 
listening right now who is maybe thinking, does all this really matter? You know, as long as we all agree as Christians that God made everything, who, who cares how he did it, how long it took, the, the mechanisms that he did or didn't use in that? I, I wonder, you're coming at this from as a scientist with a long career in science. Uh, you understand some of the biology here. You, you, you studied cells, and you understand the, the wonder of DNA and this genetic information. Uh, but speak to the person, maybe the lay Christian, who, who maybe feels at times just overwhelmed by this. Uh, why is this such an important conversation to have, especially within the church? Every worldview has to answer the question, what is the thing or the entity or the process from which everything else came? Darwinism and its affiliated theories and sub-theories has been um, a crucial part of uh, the support for the worldview of, of, of naturalism or scientific naturalism. The idea that the universe is eternal and self-existing and self-organizing, therefore there is no need for an external creator or designing intelligence of any kind. And naturalism has been the worldview that's dominated the culture. Naturalism has made almost all Christian affirmations seem untenable because there is no God to act. Therefore, miracles are impossible. Therefore, the Christian story makes no sense. There's no need for redemption. There's no need. None of that makes sense within a naturalistic framework. The other thing I would say is that what happens once you adopt the Darwinian schema and say, well, we can reconcile this with theology. Invariably, what happens is that as you then read scriptural texts, you bring the evolutionary um, the the theory that you've affirmed into your hermeneutic, and you start to read the text with an evolutionary hermeneutic. And you so what you find is when theistic evolutionists will say, "Well, we can reconcile a biblical theology with evolutionary theory," when you read the reconcile when you look at what they've done to reconcile invariably they've reinterpreted passages of scripture in light of evolutionary theory so what is the controlling hermeneutical uh framework is not um biblical theology or even a neutral theology it's 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 decidedly evolutionary right right you remove the evolutionary assumptions and the, 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 the reconciliation that's provided by these reinterpretations of the passages do, do, doesn't make any sense. There's no, there's no warrant for, that, for those, for those um, reinterpretations of Scripture apart from the evolutionary theory that they've already adopted. So on this topic of uh, how we should allow science to influence our interpretation of Scripture, I've heard some who would probably be more on the theistic evolution side, point to the issue of the age of the earth as a good example of, of how, if you look at Scripture itself, uh, they, they argue that you wouldn't probably come away from reading the Bible with the idea that the earth and the universe is millions, if not billions of years old. That, you know, we, we have these famous uh, Christians of old who kind of caught, counted up all of the genealogies and came up with some, some number in the thousands for the age of the earth since creation. But that science, geology, and astronomy have given us strong evidence that the universe is older, much older than that. And that's okay to allow that to inform, uh, not, to, not to change or 
uh, go against what Scripture clearly teaches, but maybe help us better understand what Scripture is trying to teach us and maybe what it's not. So how do you see this as being different than uh, maybe questions of just the age of the earth? I'm not convinced that the, 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 the scriptural text read very carefully is teaching a young earth. Um, and I, uh, I did a, a piece in the Four Views, a Four Views book with one of your competitors, Zondervan, where I, I explained my view on this, responding to both Deborah Harzma, a theistic evolutionist, and Ken Ham, a, a young earth creationist. And um, to me, the, um, when you read the Genesis account, you get to day four, and there's a very important clue. It not only tells us that we didn't have the sun and the moon, um, they were either, either didn't exist or weren't visible until the fourth day of, the, in, of creation in the Genesis account, but it also tells us that the, the, the sun and the moon were markers. They were time markers for the days, the years, and the seasons. So that's a very strong indicator to me that, that the yoms, the days of creation that were established independently before the sun and the moon, and which are described throughout the Genesis account from day one to day six and on to day seven, are periods of indiscriminate length from a human point of view. The means by which, the means by which we mark time were not present when those days of creation were established. And there's a wonderful biblical scholar, uh, Jack Collins, at uh, Covenant Seminary, who has often been asked the question, well, were the days of creation uh, short uh, uh, Ken Ham days or long Hugh Ross days? And he says, neither. They were days of indiscriminate length from a human point of view, <laughs> citing this, this very passage, uh, uh, the, the day four passage and other, other aspects of the, of, the, of the Genesis passage. So I think we have to be very careful not to impute our own assumptions about the meanings of words without a careful analysis of the text, number one. Number two, because I, I read the Genesis text that way, I think that science is entirely appropriate, our best science is entirely appropriate to help us understand how old the earth is. And, um, and so I've come to the view that humans, or that, that the earth is very old, that the humans are relatively recent in age uh, in comparison to the age of the cosmos itself and the age of the earth. And, and, um, and I think there's a, a, a very nice synthesis between science and scripture, taking our best science and our best scriptural interpretation at hand, understanding that both our best science and our both scriptural interpretation are always provisional, and we may need to revise as we get new information. I call that the qualified agreement um, model of huh. science and faith interaction. Yeah. So maybe speak to the person. You, you've already talked to the person who maybe... Uh, wonders why this is all so important. Speak to the other side of that equation, maybe the person listening who, wherever they fall on these issues about creation and evolution, um, they tend to think of this as a foundational defining issue for the church, and they might even view this as a test of orthodoxy. So someone could say, hey, I'm a Christian, I believe what the Bible says is true, but I also believe in some kind of Darwinian evolution. I don't really know how to fit those together, but I think they're both true. And, and this person would say, I, I, don't, I don't really know if you're a Christian then, because that seems like a, a pretty big problem. What would you say to that person? Well, I think, um, just doubling back to the earlier question about the importance of the issue, uh, um, I maybe didn't pay that off as succinctly as I should have when you first asked me, but... Um, 
the, the point I was making about worldview formation, I think, is, is really important, that every worldview has to answer what James Sire called the prime reality question. What is the thing or the entity or the process from which everything else comes? And our ideas about biological and cosmological origins um, are, are, I think, our scientific ideas play a huge role in the worldview we end up adopting. And, uh, and so I think that's one of the, 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 I mean, the central reasons why it's important. At the same time, all of us um, have, have a variety of views on a variety of topics that may or may not be completely consistent with a biblical worldview and with biblical teaching. And so our claim has never been that uh, those uh, our scientific colleagues who hold to the theistic evolutionary view are not Christians or uh, are, are somehow um, you know, morally or otherwise deficient, um, but rather that the view is either in, inconsistent with our best understanding of Scripture and our, our, the best biblical theology, or that it's contrary to the scientific evidence. So this is, this is a, an argument about propositions, not about people. And obviously people hold propositions, and so we argue with the people who hold them, but we're not questioning people's uh, sincerity of belief or their, their, um, their orthodoxy, especially as it appertains to things concerning the gospel. Most theistic evolutionists will want to say, yeah, we believe all the core tenets of the gospel. But we do want to say that the, the, our, idea, our ideas about uh, how things came to be, our ideas about creation, do bleed over into and can bleed over into very important uh, uh, tenets of, of biblical faith. And so for people who, and I should, I should say, not all proponents of intelligent design are biblical Christians. I happen to be one of both. I'm a, I'm a proponent of intelligent design and I, and I hold to a biblical faith. So as, as speaking as a Christian layman, um, I, I, I am concerned about what happens when people say, well, I think that uh, you know the Darwinian evolution is the way things happened, and um, as I begin to think about that, I'm not sure that there was uh, an historical um, uh, first man and first woman. Therefore, I, I don't really think that there can be any sense to the notion that uh, the first man and first woman somehow uh, rejected God's commands or rebelled or fell in that theological sense. And therefore, I have to reconceptualize my notion of the fall, which makes it then very difficult to make sense of what's meant by the atonement. And so there can be a knock-on effect in, 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 as far as orthodoxy as people think very seriously about one of, their, one of the key propositions that they may have accepted on, on scientific or alleged scientific grounds about, about origins. So these things are connected. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time today to... Uh, talk with us and share a little bit about theistic evolution as you see it and uh, helping us to, as you say, ironically move the conversation forward. Thank you, Matt, for the, the stimulating discussion and your in-depth questions. You gave me a lot of time to unpack all this, so that's great. That was Stephen Meyer on theistic evolution. For more, be sure to check out the book he co-edited, Theistic Evolution, a scientific, philosophical, and theological critique from Crossway. Available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. 
Visit us today at crossway.org.